But what I was able to work in the story is that aside from these ridiculous and spectacular elements of their lives, that they were human. And that when it push came to shove, they relied upon each other. That they were able to find a common core in friendship and supporting each other. You're listening to the Story Geeks Podcast, which is produced by the Reclamation Society. Well, joining me today on the Story Geeks podcast is a voice you have heard before on our Rogue One podcast. Um, And actually, I was able to meet Hannibal Tavu through Michael Young, who you guys also know from several of the podcasts that he has been on. Actually, he was on our A New Hope podcast and our The Phantom Menace podcast. So he's basically stealing all the first of the trilogy movies. (laughs) That's basically what he's doing. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, Hannibal Taboo is joining me today. He was an amazing guest on our Rogue One podcast. How are you doing, Hannibal? I am. Uh, I'm making it work. I'm definitely making it work. Yes. Yeah, sometimes we have one of those weeks, and it's not a great week, but you do what you can. Yes, sir. Um, why don't you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, maybe they didn't listen to the Rogue One podcast, or maybe there's some other things you'd like to share. Tell us a little bit about your projects that are available right now that they could go purchase, all that kind of good stuff. No problem. Well, uh, my name is Hannibal Taboo, and I'm best known probably as the writer of a column at Comic Book Resources called The Buy Pile which has been going since 2006. It's a weekly reviews comic where I read somewhere between 40 and 80 comic books a week and say yes, no, meh, maybe, what have you. Um, That's probably my best known thing. I also won the 2012 Top Cow Talent Hunt, which led me to write Artifacts 35 for Top Cow and Image Comics. I've written four authoritative source books for Aspen Comics on Executive Assistant Iris, uh, Ask, uh, Fathom, Soulfire, and one for the entire universe when they were getting ready to do their big reboot. Uh, I've also written my, my, currently what I'm very excited about now is the works I'm doing for Wonderman Comics. I'm doing a, a vampire uh, alternative history story called Irrational Numbers, which uh, focuses on Pythagoras, the ancient Greek mathematician who inadvertently sets uh, things in, in, in into place that, uh, caused a lot more trouble than he planned. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't show his work on the math there. So, uh, so that's a big project I'm working on. But I've also worked with, uh, I did an issue of Watson and Holmes for uh, New Paradigm Studios with Stephen Grant, who, co- wrote, who created Two Guns, uh, that movie for Boom Studios. I also did uh, some stuff with a football player named uh, Philip Buchanan, a book called New Money. I've done fantasy no- prose novellas with Stranger Comics. And... Uh, with Wonderman Comics in the fall, we have a straight historical fiction book called Scoundrel, set in 1981 Los Angeles, and it's based on a series of uh, 18th century series of paintings called a, a Rake's Progress, and we tr- reinterpolate that for a more modern milieu. So, wow, that's cool. That was the year I was born in the city. I was born. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna not remember that because I was sitting with my mom watching Thornbirds. But uh, <laughs> so yeah, I've got that stuff going on. Plus, of course, two weekly web comics, uh, Men Through the Anger of Angels. Um, it's an ancient Egyptian superhero based in Los Angeles fighting angels and demons, and then uh, Project Wildfire Street Justice, which is an unlikely Superman, a superhuman fighting giant monsters in a southern city streets. Man, sounds like a ton of super cool stuff. Now, you talked about Irrational um, Numbers on mm-hmm. the Rogue One podcast. Now, that is out and available for purchase now. There are two issues out available on Comixology, Amazon, uh, 
Barnes and Noble uh, on all major online booksellers. Those are available right now. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So go out and get that. If you're listening to the show, go check it out for sure. So you, you just listed off like a ton of projects and they all sound really fascinating. What, which of those projects has really been your favorite project? Hmm. My stock answer when anybody asks what, what my favorite project is, is the next one. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say the one that I'm, I've had the most, it's been the biggest surprise to me has been Project Wildfire. Because when it started out, it was a fairly simple story. It just uh, I work with this artist named Quinn McGowan, who also grew up in Memphis like I did. And his mm-hmm. idea was simple, that this guy gets, uh, he goes to, a, you remember when you were in college, I said, make some extra money by participating in an experiment. So he went to one of those and accidentally got superpowers, but everybody else, nice. everybody else died. So, whoa! Uh, and the experiment was so because they were worried about this contagion that was coming out, which turns normal people into giant monsters. And I took the core of this because he said it doesn't feel like it's enough. I said, well, if you don't feel like it's enough, let's see what we can do with it, and made it into a much larger story that now, for us in our mind, has a beginning, middle, of an, and an end. We know. We know what the last panel of uh, mm. Project Wildfire is already. We just have to get ourselves there. And mm. working on that has allowed me to expand on a lot of things that I wasn't expecting to do in a superhero story. Mm. Uh, I was able to you know, touch on some of the racial sensitivities of the modern South, where, for example, in the first page of the current book, Street Justice, uh, he's, you know, because he, he's still just a regular guy, so he goes with his cousin to go get some chicken. And he's uh, uh, this reporter you know, kind of ambushes him and says, how do you feel about your desire for stereotypical food endangering actual citizens as a monster may come and attack you? And he's like, really? I can't just go get some chicken? Really? Seriously? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's a lot of things uh, that I'm able to touch on there that uh, you won't see in your average superhero comics and that are closer to the issues happening in our real world, but still not, you know, without being preachy, without hitting you over the head with it, but also... Uh, just making it a more realistic thing. Truthfully, uh, uh, in the way that a lot of Stan, Stan Lee comics did back in the 70s, where they looked at mm. things that were, you know, just not what you were expecting to see. And and to be able to put that surprise element keeps the stories fresh in my mind. Absolutely, yeah. And obviously, like on the Story Geeks podcast here, we we love that kind of stuff. The stuff that just doesn't it doesn't just gloss over things. It actually addresses some of it as, as you go through it. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um well, I'm sure we'll touch touch on a lot of those things as we go through this this whole interview because I got a bunch of questions for you. Um, and one of my first ones is that like you are a busy dude, so you're like not only are you always working, so I'm always seeing. Um, so I follow Hannibal on all his social media, so I always see the hashtag nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a day job, you've got you know a family, mm-hmm. you've got your writing. How, how do you how do you balance all that stuff? How how does Hannibal Taboo make sure that he's still getting his stuff out there? I mean, like you're prolific with your stuff, so how do you make that happen? Well, the the easiest answer to that is, of course, I'm going to die early. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I I haven't had a decent night's sleep since 1979. Uh, I'm still uh, I, I, what I do is I, I organize myself very using a lot of digital tools and a lot of discipline. And I try to keep in mind uh, a phrase that I, I worked up several years ago to keep me motivated. Incremental progress in all things. So if I can do a little bit on a little bit of everything, that's mm. pushing it a little bit further down the field, closer to the end zone in my mind. Not that I'm supporting the NFL with cap not playing. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, like today, for example, uh, I was standing in line at the supermarket and I got a couple of lines of dialogue polished up 
for the Planned Parenthood anthology, Mine, that I'm working on. It's got, it's got Neil Gaiman in it, Gail Simone, all these other people. And I was shocked that they invited me, uh, Quinn and myself to participate as well. So uh, I snuck in a little bit of that using a tool called Scrivener. It's an iOS app that uh, it lets you put things on like these little virtual index cards. You can move them around and arrange them like a corkboard, but it also syncs all of that stuff to Dropbox. So whatever device I'm on, that's where all my projects are. So I can automatically see what I'm doing without having to say, oh, I left that on my computer or, oh, I left that on my tablet and so on and so forth. In wow. doing so, that allows me to keep up with all the projects in every spare second that you don't see me talking to somebody or dealing with my family or whatever. I'm stealing time to write every time. And I know that every minute I steal to do those things is stolen from somebody else. But to be a writer means having to accept those kinds of sacrifices. And I work through that. My, my wife is enormously supportive and enormously understanding. My family, likewise. I'm doing this interview in my, my daughter's bedroom while they're all out in the rest of the house. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we, uh, we all work towards supporting each other's goals. So, like, on Monday when I'm dropping my eldest off, she's in a production of August Wilson's Fences with Malcolm Jamal Warner. Uh, oh, wow. So while she, well, I'm waiting for her to get done with that, I'll be writing in Scrivener. And then I'll say, oh, you're done? sync it up to the thing and we're out and then i can work on it wherever else i catch up to it the next time that i have a free second that's awesome wow that sounds like a lot of work but it sounds like you're you're very successful at it so that's awesome i'm doing okay so far yeah by the way you have to thank your daughter for letting us borrow her bedroom for the, i will definitely miss the interview <laughs> okay so you, you you talked about a lot of different projects a lot of those things are coming out of um your original ideas it sounds mm -hmm. like so and sometimes you're working on with other people on other projects but where where do you come up with ideas where do your ideas come from well i've always seen myself as a kind of a prism and that the universe uh the light of the universe shines through me and reflects through my experience my training my values and my approach to things to tell to put these things out in a different way so for example uh there's uh, a song called that was originally by skylar gray called uh, I Love the Way You Lie. It was remade by Eminem and Rihanna. And mm. the original version of the story, or, well, the song rather, uh, was so striking to me that I immediately, the second I heard it, I was like, this is the story of these two characters uh, in the Task universe, which is done by my friend Damien Gonzalez. This is what happened to them. This is their story. So mm. I immediately started, based upon the way that the, the structure of the song, figuring out how to write that out. And this is this panel, and this is going to go this way. And then you set this scene up this way. And the the and how it ends. So I immediately saw that, and it it sparked something happened to me. Whatever I run into in my regular life will normally push me in the direction of a story, be it a song, be it uh, a, a forgotten part of something I see on TV, be it an offhanded comment that someone makes to me. All of those things can push me in the direction of uh, something. And likewise, I learned from the lessons of Christopher Priest that you have to be disciplined in terms of knowing how to create these things. So. When somebody comes to me with something, I'm like, okay, I have to come up with something. What is, let me boil it down to the brass tacks of the characters and let the characters guide me through what their actions would be if faced with certain situations. And using mm. those tools, uh, some of which I learned when I was at USC getting my degree in creative writing, some of which I learned at the Anansi Writers Workshop in Lamert Park, uh, some of which I've learned, you know, dealing with very good writers and good mentors and good editors and good friends as a peer review group like Brandon Easton or Jeffrey Thorne, those things have all helped me become a better writer and, and pushed me further along the road. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So you said uh, the, one of the names you threw out there was Christopher Priest. Is mm-hmm. that what you're getting at? What, 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 is his, what are his works? What, where, where can people find that resource? Well, Christopher Priest was the first black editor at Marvel in the, uh, well, at Marvel or DC. But he started mm-hmm. Marvel in the 70s when his name was Jim Owsley at the time. Mm-hmm. And he went on to change his name and he wrote Spider-Man, Wolverine, uh, Justice League. He's written a little bit of everything. But the work that he's best known for is the Black Panther uh, series where he introduced the Dora Malahe, which are now in the movies, which he introduced a lot of the concepts that Reginald Hudlin built upon in his run and ultimately turned into what Ryan Coogler was able to bring to the screen. So uh, he's, I mean, he, he, he's been in comics almost longer than I've been alive. And mm-hmm. <laughs> he's, he's, he's also enormously gracious. He's enormously skilled. And through both reading the things on his website and getting to interview him, and luckily two years ago at Comic-Con getting to sit down with him, I've been able to glean a lot of information to help me, uh, as Spider-Jerusalem might say, uh, sh- take off the studenty curves of me and make them <laughs> sharper. So I, I hope yeah, I've learned a lot from cool. him, and I'm very grateful for his example. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love that those relationships you can develop where you have like – mentors who have done it before Mm -hmm. um that's fantastic that's really cool and also um something that i would not only as as you know a lot of our listeners are involved in storytelling in some way shape or form um i would highly encourage them to do themselves is get go get some mentors then i then i have to turn that same advice on myself and think like oh man where do i need some mentors so i'm gonna have to write that down now yeah and then we also have to remember because for me i get people who ask me well what can i do about this what can i do about this and being busy the inclination is to tell them ah screw you i got stuff to do but that's not (laughs) what christopher priest did for me that's not what Dwayne mcduffie did for me that's not what jeffrey thorne did for me so i clearly cannot do it to someone else yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, I mean, you, you're well aware. You were on the Rogue One podcast with me. You know that with the Story Geeks podcast, we dive really deep into an understanding of how stories impact us and the culture around us. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I don't know if I said this on the Rogue One podcast, but one of the things that's been very instrumental to um, my writing has been a book by Lisa Cron who wrote Wired for Story, and what she talks about is that our brains are wired to understand and interpret the world through stories. Mm-hmm. A lot of us think it's going to be data um, or just inf- like just basic information, but the reality is we actually change when we hear stories. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is, what are some of the common themes in your stories, and what beliefs or ideas are you testing? when you tell stories? <laughs> well, one of the first uh, common themes that I put forth is the idea of a level playing field that if it's not in evidence, that it can create a lot of problems. I was able to explore that both in the upcoming book, uh, Scoundrel, that I have coming out, and in uh, Irrational Numbers, where if situations had worked differently and this one character, Zalmoxis, had not been sold into slavery as a child from, because uh, he was from what's now called Transylvania, but back then was called Dacia. Uh, mm. If that had not been the case, then everything in the story wouldn't have happened. And literally mm. hundreds of thousands of people wouldn't have died. Uh, but because of that initial inequity, it leads to a domino effect of this happens, then this happens, and this happens, and so on and so forth. In Scoundrel, uh, this character is given too much too fast. I also had some themes like that in New Money for Canon Comics, where people who uh, don't have things are suddenly gifted with an enormous amount of wealth and no 
responsibility nor understanding how they owe something back from that. And that leads to, in many cases, as they say, pride before fall, that things are going to mm -hmm. go badly. And when they go badly, that's good storytelling, but it's horrible to see happen to somebody. And Absolutely. so that's, that's definitely one thing. Uh, also, like I said, with common responsibility, uh, with the superhero books that I do, um, I don't want to spoil the Planned Parenthood one because I just finished the last scene. But uh, uh, you go out and buy the Planned Parenthood book, kids. But <laughs> uh, what you'll see is people who don't have to do something uh, step up because they realize they have the ability to be of service. They have the ability to make a better, a finer world, as Warren Ellis wrote. Uh, and and they can't just stand by the side and let that not happen. They want mm. a finer world, not just for themselves, but for the people around them to make a better experience. And in Street Justice, for example, there's a new character named Faze, who's uh, a powered vigilante who works at more of a street level. And she accuses the lead character, Wildfire, of being a distraction. She says, while you're flying around there with your auntie's curtain as a cape, people are dying on the streets and you're not doing anything about it. And you have the power to do something about it. He's like, but I'm stopping giant monsters from destroying the city and eating people. She's like, do you really think that's enough? Hmm. And being confronted with that and those questions of it is one valuable to me for looking at, you know, the superhero responsibility for as much as I appreciate the power of Superman. He supports a power structure that made Trayvon Martin possible, that made Sandra Bland possible, that made, you know, Mike Brown possible. So is he doing enough? You know, oh, Superman can't be any, everywhere. He's just one guy. Really? He's kind of got super speed. And he's got satellites. <laughs> and if really he sat at home with heat vision, he could use, use mirrors to pretty much stop crime everywhere without working that hard. Mm. So I, these are questions that I, I play out both in my mind and in my storytelling that I want to uh, uh, look at. Those, those lead to, of course, uh, the question of diversity where, you know, the, the books that I see and the books that I create uh, reflect the world that is logical at that time. When... Um, in Irrational Numbers, one of the lead people in the Pythagorean school is from Kart Hadass, which is called Carthage now. That's just logical because they were Phoenic they came from the Phoenician colony, which came from the ancient Egyptian colony. It's logical that they would look the way that they do, like Michael Ely. That makes perfect sense. Hmm. And to make that happen where, you know, at the time they're talking about, oh, this constellation is based on Andromeda, who is the Nubian princess that was thought to be so, you know, that was common knowledge in the ancient world. It's not now. Uh, mm. there's a different politicization to that information. So to bring back what is logical, what fits in those times and what makes those stories work ends up looking <laughs> like a more diverse world. You know, mm. it's not the ridiculous, impossible world of expensive apartments and, and no people of color that Friends puts forth. That's not mm. there. Uh, mm. and, and to be able to do that through my work is not just my responsibility, as, as a creator of, of, of color and, and a father and, and a person of conscience, but also to be true to the stories that need to be told. To do otherwise, I'd be lying. Yeah, that's awesome. That's very cool. Um, and I'm gonna, we're going to press into this a little bit more mm -hmm. even because, you know, if our stories impact our audiences the way that we've, they've been shown to do, mm -hmm. um, it means that our stories have a way of connecting us. Mm -hmm. And so you can write a story 
that can make me question a core belief that I hold. It can make me um, excited about a core belief that I hold. It can make me all kinds of different feelings that can maybe change the way that I think about the world around me. Um, so as a storyteller, that makes me want to know a little bit more about you mm -hmm. because where your core beliefs are coming from is going to maybe impact me. So what are some of your core beliefs right now? And you know, what does your worldview look like and how do these things work their way into your stories? Well, my worldview is often, once I tell people, fairly frightening uh, because I'm, I'm in many ways a nihilist. Uh, that I, I remember saying when I was 14, year old, 14 years old or so that uh, carbon-based life was a sexually transmitted disease that if it couldn't be cured, needed to be controlled. Um, mm. That plays out into my writing, despite the fact that, you know, uh, I'm very, I create these heroes who want to find a world. There is a lot of energy working against them. And you'll see that mm. in some of the villains that I write. There's a character named Damien Dare in my novel, The Crown Ascension, which I put out, God, I can't remember how many years ago. Um, but uh, he is, uh, he's the worst. I mean, and he's not just kick the puppy bad, you know, he's, uh, uh, he's an immortal who has lived through thousands of years and sees human life as completely disposable. He's like, all of you are going to be gone and I'll still be here. So why would I mm. care about you? Why would I care what happens to you? And why would I care about not plowing through you in some of the most horrible possible ways to accomplish whatever goal I feel is appropriate at the time? Um, that kind of uh, reckless nihilism, which isn't the same brand that I practice. I practice something more surgical, I believe, um, is uh, one of the things that uh, uh, would define a hero. A, a hero can be defined appropriately by the villain that they face, by what do they stand against. And looking at that, uh, you'll see a lot of my character. Like there's one, I guess this isn't a spoiler. Okay, so there's a superhero <laughs> book that Quinn, and, Quinn McGowan and I are working on I shouldn't even say the name. But anyway, it's a team book. Okay. Uh, and there's a villain that comes out whose name is called Schrodinger's Hepcat. And he's a scientist who is doing an experiment. And he kind of broke some of the rules and kind of tried to cut some corners and ended up getting cast into the eighth dimension. And he spent, for him, 20,000 years there. For us, it was only about 15 minutes. Mm. So he came back completely crazy and imbued with these ridiculous powers that are, I mean, that make Mr. Miss Pitalik look, you know, basic by comparison. <laughs> uh, and he knows all through these things, who's going to beat him, how they're going to beat him, what's going to happen, and still has to go through with it anyway, because he understands the linearity of time. Hmm. And, but his casual indifference is like, yeah, you're going to, we're going to miss you when you're gone. And somebody says, what are you talking about? And then five pages later, when they're dead, and they're like, oh, my God, did you know that? I was like, I know everything that's going to happen. I just told you that. Mm. Why are people not listening? Mm. And <laughs> he's like, all right, now I remember why you're not listening, because you're also sadly limited. Those sorts of things, uh, my own personal beliefs, I find, come popping out of my villains far, far more than my, my heroes. Interesting. Interesting. So when, when you talk about that, like, what do you think, what do you think makes somebody a villain versus what makes them a hero? 90% of what makes somebody a villain is either public perception or whether or not they lost, honestly. Mm. Uh, because, you know, uh, there's a great talk about the, the, the greatest generation and how they freed the world for democracy and liberty and so on and so forth, and then came home to Jim Crow, and then came home to lynchings, 
and then came home to, you know, stealing land and internment camps. Mm. So how great were they? Mm. <laughs> when, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, whether you're a hero or a villain is a case of a value judgment. And if somebody else's vi- values are different than mine, then, you know, just to them, they may say Dylan Roof is a hero, where to me he's a terrorist. Right. They may see, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> Bannon, uh, the guy from the White House, Bannon, as a patriot, whereas I see him as the worst threat to America that you could possibly have. Hmm. It's a matter of perspective. So uh, the, the quote-unquote heroes and villains in my story just depend on where you stand and depend on which area I'm writing. Wildfire is a hero because he wants to do something better, uh, but he can't say that the people who stand against him don't want something better, just not better for him. Right. So you have these you have these two clashing perspectives on what better looks like. Now, what do you think? What do you think drives those perspectives? Like, what is it about each of those characters that makes them want to make the world a better place in a different way? Some of it comes from upbringing. A lot of us, a lot of what happens to us as human beings is just software. It's programming. It's programmed into us from our childhood, from our upbringing, from the things we see, from the things we watch, from the peers we have. So if, for example, in Street Justice, there's a character named the Kaiju Queen, who's a a woman who is an enormously beautiful woman who went on to become a nurse and then got this, uh, what's called the wildfire contagion, which turns her into a giant monster. Hmm. She grew up having people give her things and do things for her because she was beautiful, because they wanted to make her happy. Hmm. The fact that she grows into a 60-foot monster, she doesn't believe that should change. The world should still cater to her. And when it doesn't, it has to be made to suffer. Hmm. So uh, the better world that she wants is a world where everything is easy for her. And that doesn't change because her situation and her level of power changes. She's still the same core person with the same core software underneath that. Hmm. Uh, likewise for Wildfire, despite the fact that he came, his parents were killed when he was young, he was taken in by his uncles, he was cared for by family, and he was shown that people who accept responsibility can make things better for other people. That programming lives in him. So once he gets power that no one else has, he has to take responsibility to do something about these giant monsters because nobody else can. Hmm. Nobody else Hmm. can save them. And if no one else can it would be irresponsible for him not to lean into that. Hmm. So there's one thing I, we talk about this a lot when we talk about um, when we're doing like a story breakdown and we're doing a deep dive into a story Mm -hmm. and we talk about how, you know, my perspective on heroes and villains is that essentially heroes are giving up their own personal interests um, on behalf of a larger group of people and villains are often just doing the selfish thing to benefit themselves or their group. So as what you're talking about is, and I think this is very accurate, you can actually have someone who's viewed as a hero on one side and someone who's viewed a hero on the other side. And and this is not for those of, you know, for those out there listening who are like, well, that sounds kind of weird. Why would one person be considered a hero? I mean, watch what's going on in the United States Mm -hmm. in regards to these statues that are, you know, Confederate, former Confederate statues. Like some people consider those people heroes and therefore they're upset that those are being taken down. Mm -hmm. Um, So does that, does that description sort of coincide with with what you would agree with what you're expressing? Or do you think that there's more nuance than that? Uh, From a certain point of view, I'd say there's more nuance because you look at a Victor Von Doom, for example, in Marvel comics who, uh, 
everything he does is to make a better Latveria. And he, or you could even look at Palpatine from Star Wars. Many people, and they've touched on this in the new uh, Battlefront 2 game, uh, many people see him as a hero because he brought order to the galaxy. Making mm-hmm. a lawless, crazy galaxy suddenly makes sense for a lot of people is seen as a good thing. So mm-hmm. uh, to defend that new order, to defend Palpatine, to, to stand up for the things that he stands up for, despite the fact that some people may have, you may have to break some eggs to make some of those omelets, is seen as uh, uh, fine. It's, it's a slippery slope. They're, they're happy to jump down in a toboggan. So uh, there's a, a, an element of selfishness to some villains, to some, uh, like, say, for instance, if you look at a Sinestro, maybe. Well, actually, no, because Sinestro thinks he's bringing order, too. Um, <laughs> some villains can be seen as selfish. And truthfully, Palpatine, when you look at him himself, is selfish. But the effect he has is seen as heroic by the people because they benefited from his selfishness. They were on the right side of the line. Wookiees, not so much. Humans, oh yeah, go for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Hmm. And that's, again, going to be based on your values, your upbringing, where you stand on the spectrum of wherever the specific uh, line is. And that line can move. So, for example, back in the 80s, I remember this very clearly, uh, you'd read the old uh, G.I. Joe comic books that Larry Hamo's writing about, the heroic Afghan fighters working hard to beat the, the Soviets and so on and so forth that are literally the same people that the United States is fighting today, mm. that are armed with the weapons that they got from the United States in the 80s. Mm. Right, that, right. you know, oh, today you're the bad guys, but yesterday you weren't. Who knows what you'll be tomorrow? That's, but does that change who those people were? Does that change what their values were, what they believed? No. It only changed how they're perceived. Mm. So, hero, villain, eh, these titles sometimes are hard to define. Uh, Absolutely, In my own life, I I follow the words of a a rapper named Brother Jay. I take the good with the bad, and sometimes I do a little bit of both. (laughs) That is human nature for you right there. Yes, sir. So, let me me, um, ask you one follow-up question on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you then believe that there are any things like absolute truths or or are all of those coming from different perspectives based on experience or is there something that we could all commonly say uh, or i know let me let me rephrase it because i think a lot of people would deny mm-hmm. absolute truth right mm-hmm. but is there such a thing as absolute truth is oh. that is that something that can be quantified discussed etc the answer is yes, but people don't like what the answer really means. There is absolute mm. truth. Death mm. is an absolute truth. Gravity is an absolute truth. Uh, the speed of light is an absolute truth. There are facts that cannot be denied. Uh, then there are opinions about facts, good, bad. Eh, there's no absolutes in those regards because those are personal decisions based on values. Uh, absolute truths exist mostly in science, and science lives to find them. But outside of that, everything's kind of just a guessing game based upon what we decide is important. <laughs> so would you, like, if someone said, like, what about love? What would, what would you say? Like, what is love? Uh, based upon the scientific approach to it, love is uh, a, a, a biological impulse that in-group uh, uh, feelings are created to fer- propagate the species. We have a biological imperative to procreate. That biological imperative makes us think that some things are cute. So, oh, this thing that I spawned is cute, so I will care for it and love it. You know, that's the scientific thing. And it's based on oxytocin. It's based on very specific chemical impulses within our bodies. Uh, That's 
not what people want to hear. <laughs> and, you know, when I look at my kids, I don't think, oh, I, you know, I just care for you because of my biological imperative. No, I care for you because I care for you. Right, but, right, right. you know, if you were to step away from me and I believe that I care for them because I care for them because of my upbringing and my values, that's not a fact. It's a belief. Right, now, right. belief is very important because belief in my mind can be the difference between doing something and not doing something. Hmm. But uh, I don't believe that many people, in, or at least in my experience and my research, are happy with the, the idea that that is what absolute truth is. Accepting that kind of a determinist look at the universe is very difficult for people based on their own dogmatic beliefs and their own place where they stand. It's difficult for them to get away from that and see other perspectives in the same way that's difficult for, you know, uh, uh, it was difficult for Dylan Roof to think that these people sitting in a church worshiping the exact same God that I profess uh, have value and deserve to live. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, that is a fascinating take. I, and I think now when you, do you, when you encounter, when you start talking about this, these core ideas that you're exploring, these core beliefs, these, like you called it facts, mm -hmm. do you experience that there's a lot of people that tend to side with you on that? Or, or is your experience that it's a fairly different perspective or unique perspective, I should say? It's a different perspective. I don't remember a time in my life when I've had the preponderance of people on my side. Uh, mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Uh, and I've just come to accept that, uh, it's, it, it's a, it, well, I hate to go Whitney Houston, but it's a lonely place to be. So I learned to depend on me, uh, <laughs> in that regard, there are, uh, th there's a common narrative. There's a very common narrative throughout most of Western culture that these things are good. These things are right. And this is the way things are supposed to be. Right. And if you don't fall directly in line with that, you're going to fall outside of it. I don't fall anywhere close to in line with that. Mm. I, I believe that, you know, starting in ancient Greece, truth be told, and, and kind of going forward, things have been going pretty crappy for humanity as a whole. Hmm. You know, it's worked out pretty well for a fairly small group, but that small group has worked to do pretty horrible things to virtually everybody else. Right. And uh, yay for them, I guess. I guess you can call them winners or whatever. But, uh, you know, all bills come due sooner or later. Right. <laughs> and right. no pendulum ever stays on one side. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what is that? That is a fascinating take. I'm so glad you, that you are willing to explore that with me a little bit more. Um, I live it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's definitely. And it, and it actually, it makes a lot of sense because in the Rogue One podcast, um, you mentioned the word um, sort of uh, merit or meritocracy several mm -hmm. times. And um, it makes a lot of sense that that would come out of that sort of worldview about how to how to go about changing the world from your perspective what truths do you want to stand on what facts in your in your um, terminology what facts do you want to stand on uh really really fascinating so thank you for sharing that mm -hmm. based on those things what are some things that you hope people take away from your stories well okay for that i have to go to george orwell uh there's a passage where o'brien is talking about uh the resistance to the thought police and he says you will uh, work for a little while, you'll be caught, you'll be tortured, you'll confess, and you'll die. These are the only results that you will ever see. Uh, we will take part in the future as handfuls of dust and splinters of bone. In the face of the thought police, there is no other way. And that's mm. kind of, I read that when I was probably nine, mm. and I was like, 
okay, this is what we're doing. So <laughs> um, my goal in my writing, even in the most fatuous, superficial, ridiculous things that I'm writing, is for people to take a little glimpse of uh, a, diff- a slightly different perspective than the dominant narrative and to take that with them as a little seed of something that may work through their brains. There's a story I wrote called um, New Money. This uh, football player, Philip Buchanan, contracted me to write it because he wanted to basically make an idea. He wanted to show people something of the life that he had lived as a professional football player, which is so ridiculous. And he wanted to do so uh, in a way, he said, basically to do entourage where everybody's rich. So in the group of four friends, there's a football player, there's a boxer who's a lot like Floyd Mayweather, there's a musician who's a lot like uh, Justin Timberlake, and there's a soccer player who's a lot like uh, David Beckham. Hmm. And these four people become friends so when they decide to throw a party, oh, okay, yeah, we'll throw a party. We're going to rent out Nokia Live downtown in Los Angeles, which is this ginormous place that seats thousands of people. That's where we're going to have our party. Oh, when the party goes wrong, one of them has a jet pack. It's literally in the car just waiting and jet packs away. This seemed like perfectly normal things for them because they have so much money that the regular rules don't apply. Hmm. But what I was able to work in the story is that aside from these ridiculous and spectacular elements of their lives, that they were lonely, that they were scared, that they were human, and that when it push came to shove, they relied upon each other, that they were able to find a common core in friendship and supporting each other. And to humanize somebody like that. So when people see a Richard Sherman and say that this college-educated salutatorian is a quote-unquote thug, (laughs) you know, to see that these are people these are people with lives and friendships and, and, and human elements. And to take that away from the story was important to me. I want to do all of those things in part, as I said, to create that level playing field. Because in a level playing field world, then I would every month see books from Jeffrey Thorne, Ken Lashley, and Zach Dolan, instead of the same five writers that I see and the same mm. you know, 15 artists that I see with them. Uh, because there's, as Sting said, a deeper world in this tugging at your hand. Mm. I think that's a, that's a really cool concept, and I love that that you can look at this and say like, what does an equal playing field look like, um, and how would I give people hope for an equal playing field? That's super cool. And as you talked about how our history from ancient Greece to the present has really done a awful job, and actually history even before that has done an awful job of creating equal playing fields. Um, That is certainly something to hope for, no question. Hey guys, pardon my brief interruption here, but do you need a new pair of headphones? If you do, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Urban Vinyl. They make premium wood headphones that look amazing. But here's the thing, they're made by audiophiles for audiophiles, so they sound as good as they look. In fact, reviewers have called their headphones the best headphones on the market. Better even than Bose and Beats. And you know what? I agree. They're what I use when I record this podcast. Please consider purchasing a pair using the link in the show notes. If you click the link to their website and use the promo code J, my name, my first name, J-A-Y, super simple, you save 15% and Urban Vinyl will make a donation to the Reclamation Society. So if you need headphones or you're looking to upgrade the pair that you currently have, definitely take a look at what Urban Vinyl has to offer. Click the link in the show notes to visit their website and use my name, J-A-Y, to get the 15% discount. Thanks for letting me interrupt. Now, let's get back to the show. 
Where do you now? This is this question's not on here, so I just find your Come perspective through. so fascinating that I'm just going to keep throwing questions at you. Mm-hmm. Where do you find hope? Like, so when you look at the world around you and you, you describe your perspective, I mean, you don't see a lot of hope there. So what what do you personally put hope in? Where do you put your hope? There are four places that I put it before anything else. First of all, there is a seven year old in the other room who has an IQ of 145 and who uh, just started a gifted magnet school and who loves to give hugs and loves to, loves to do things for people and smiles with great joy for herself when she's able to help other people. She's one. Um, in the other room, there's a 13-year-old who uh, was on stage with Malcolm Jamal Warner in a production of Fences, August Wilson's mm. Fences, who is, you know, was in The People versus O.J. Simpson, who produces music and in, in logic on her computer and is about trying to figure out what's going to be the marketing plan for her new web series and is taking college classes and will be done with her BA by the time she's 15 years old. I'm sorry, her associate's degree by the time she's 15 years old. And then there's my wife, who is the most talented, most amazing person I've ever met, who has never seen a challenge that she didn't say, yeah, I can handle that, and set herself down to learn whatever it takes and get it done. So between the three of them and on top of that, my own ability to overcome, to work through things and to always every day wake up with a new idea, yeah, there's, uh, there's no shortage of hope. There's no shortage of faith in moving forward, mm, even as awesome. a nihilist. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 exactly. I think that that would be, I think that that would be one of the biggest challenges with that particular worldview would be able to consistently like, I mean, like you described when you came on this, when you came on the show, you described a little bit like this, you know, this week has been, I don't, you didn't use these words. So I'm putting words in your mouth and I apologize. It was a rough week. (laughs) Yeah. A rough week, a challenging week. Right. So, so as a, as a nihilist, I can just imagine that it's like, you've got to keep those, those four pieces of hope constantly at the forefront because otherwise it would be very difficult. I'm imagining. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's Good for you that you can keep pushing through that too. No, it's, it's it's not necessarily the best hope because again, it's a hope that this world will burn. It's a hope that the banners that represent what this world stands for will fall. So it's not yeah. necessarily, by many people's opinion, the best hope. But one day, if there's another person like my daughter or another person like my wife or another person like me, and they can live in a world that I work to destroy this one that can be better, then that's not bad. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because I come from the perspective, I'm a Christ follower. I hate to use the word Christian because honestly, I feel like, well, you described it, right? You described, you go back into from ancient Greece to now. And you, if you, if you look at some of the major world religions, including Christianity, Mm -hmm. you're seeing some of the most awful things being done to people, Mm -hmm. right? So I hate to use that moniker because that moniker is the same moniker that's being used by other people in other places. And I'm sitting at the other end of that table going, uh... I know we're all human and, and imperfect, but you cannot describe to me a scenario in which Jesus Christ would have said that was okay. Yep. So that's weird to me. So it's it's interesting coming from hearing your worldview because there are parts that I totally agree with you on, right? There are like these parts where I'm going, yeah, like because of what I believe about um, sin being a, a constant in the world, mm-hmm. this world does need to burn. <laughs> like it has to. <laughs> like that that this world needs justice and it doesn't have justice. Mm-hmm. And as you talk about um, an equal playing field and um, having people that are all on the same level, I'm like, yes, that is what it's supposed to be like, and it is not that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love the fact that we can actually have this conversation and ha- and share these ideas that are 
that actually share a lot in common, even though we might call our belief systems different things. We're not so different, so. you and I. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That is right. Yeah, it's super fun, too. Um, so I'm going to ask you um, these next two questions out of order because I'm, I'm realizing that it makes way more sense to ask it in this order. Mm -hmm. um, so and we've tackled this from a couple different angles, but specifically, what sort of questions do you hope people will ponder as they read your stories? Um, what I hope that they will ponder and, and what I and hope is a, a, a tough word for me to use because there's not a lot of it going around. Um, sure, sure. Uh, if somebody can read my works and say, huh, maybe I don't know it. Maybe there's something I need to look into. Maybe I need to see this from a different perspective and they'll go out and look something up or find something new. Then that would be very encouraging to me. I know in 19, I think it was 89. Yeah. In 1989, I, uh, I, I, I saw a t uh, somebody wearing a sweatshirt. Uh, it was a public enemy sweatshirt that said, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. And I was like, what the hell is that? What? <laughs> what, what? It takes how many people? I, what is this? So I went to the record store and I picked up a song called Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos on a cassette single, which shows how old I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember those two. <laughs> and I got on the bus to go home. And I plugged it into my Walkman and I just stayed on the bus all the way, listening to it nonstop, stay on the bus listening to it on uh, auto reverse, went right back to the mall and bought the album uh, because there was so much in there reading the liner notes and reading the lyrics, looking up the names, Joanne Chesimar, Mr. Farrakhan. These were, I didn't know who these people were. I was like, what are mm. you talking about? I was a mm. kid who had grown up a Southern Baptist and I, you know, I, I was exposed to so many more things. So, and it didn't, you know, it's not like they, I, they slowed down to explain it to me. It's not like when I heard uh, uh, wrapped around my finger by the police that Sting stopped to say what Scylla and Charybdis were. I had to go look that right. up. I got to go figure it out. Right. And it made, I think that extra level of work made it worth it, made it, made it important. So I could say, oh, that's much better of a metaphor than caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. That's much better. Mm. Oh, oh, that's deep. I like that. And yeah. being able to take in those sorts of things. So I drop a lot of offhanded stuff and stuff. I, some things that, you know, there's the first issue of Artifacts, when I did Artifacts 35 for Top Cow, in the first page of the first issue, there's a character who's a gun runner. And instead of putting him in the Balkans or in South America, somewhere boring, I put him in Chicago. And he was selling mm. sniper rifles and bulletproof vests to the Nation of Islam. He says, these mm. will help you clean up your neighborhood. You worried about something? Now you don't have to even get close. Mm. And putting that idea out there, which is an impossibly ridiculous idea that nobody, like, how could you, you know, <laughs> like four people out of all the people who've talked to me about that book, four people have come up to me and, uh, and not all of them are black and said, so this page, um, <laughs> and they got where I was going and it doesn't happen often. So the in jokes don't always hit everybody and that's fine. That's, you know, expected. Everybody yeah. didn't go look up Scylla and Charybdis. Uh, but when it happens, it's enormously, enormously gratifying for me. And I would hope that people can look at these works and say, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe there's, maybe there is a deeper world in this and maybe I should follow when it tugs me at my hand. Oh, that is awesome. And that is what we as story geeks want. So please do that. And all, I mean, like the, the way that you just described the way that you were encouraged to go out and look at things mm -hmm. like, oh, I love that. That's fantastic. 
Um, so now we're going to twist it a little bit and not come, come at you so intense with these questions about your worldview. All good. Um, but it, this is going to be more about you as a, as a writer. Uh, mm-hmm. Not so much about the, the core beliefs, but about how do you do this? What do you use? So what tools do you use as a writer? And um, do you use anything to help you formulate plots, develop characters? And what are some of those things? What are some of the things that writers or creators could go out and, and get themselves that would help them do this the way you do it? Well, there are three levels of tools I work with, technical uh, process and, and, and training. Uh, from a technical standpoint, I talked about Scrivener a little bit, which I cannot say enough good about. It's worth okay. every freaking cent I paid for it. I don't buy many apps, but I, I happily paid for that. Um, I also use a, an app called Textastic on uh, my iPad. Uh, there's a version of it for Mac, but I ended up using Text Wrangler, which is free from uh, okay. the people from Barebone Software, because it's just a really stripped down text editor when I just need to just get right into something and not do anything else. Or if I'm mm. working on HTML for my website or things like that, these are the places that I turn. Um, Textastic also has the benefit of having great file management, so I can manage things back and forth between my computer and uh, my iPad, and it also has an FTP process so I can put things on my website. So those mm. are some of the technical tools that I use. Um, oh, also, uh, I, I capture a lot of notes using my Apple Watch and using reminders, using an app called Workflow. I'm able to capture, uh, whenever I get an idea, there's some means for me to capture it so it doesn't get away from me. That's very awesome. important because if, if you don't honor the muse, it might stop coming to you. Uh, so that's something I'm always worried about. From a process-oriented standpoint, I, have a do- I grew up reading Who's Who in the DC Universe and the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, and these were enormously important to me because I could, one, catch up on sometimes dozens of years of stories that I wouldn't have time or money to be able to catch up with and get a better understanding of characters, mm-hmm. but also that if I thought one day I might get a chance to write these stories, I then had the, the, the underpinnings of what the characters were about right there. It, it, it gives any new writer a chance to be able to get into the universe and just j- jump from that point. So I have a, a file that I call a, a, a character.txt, and in it, it has the insert role here. And it says name, uh, height, weight. Uh, you know, it's got a list of, of certain characteristics about somebody, including their personal history, how they walk, what's their astrology, you know, things like that, and mm. get, where are they from, what kind of education do they have. And using that, if I ever get lost, I can be like, what is this character doing again? Right. And I go back there and I'm like, oh, I know this guy. I know which one this one is. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. And having that as a touch point from a process standpoint is enormously helpful. I likewise use outlines very, very, very heavily because, as I said, with incremental progress, I don't have time to sit down and go all the way through things. Right. So I'll write a couple of pages of script and then leave it for two weeks. And I'll be like, what was I doing? Oh, the outline knows what I was doing because I already wrote the map to where I'm going. Hmm. And the outline serves as like when you plug in a destination on Waze, it's, it's going to get you there, you know? <laughs> right. And you may find some turns along the way that may be a little kooky, but you'll ultimately know where you're going. <laughs> right. Uh, outlines and the character document are very important to me, uh, as well as, you know, making sure that if there's notes about things, like say, for instance, when I'm writing about, uh, uh, when I'm doing irrational numbers, I had a whole long page of notes with Wikipedia links and links to different sites about Pythagoras, about his wife, about his, his school, about things about him. And I would be able to go back to that list of links and like, wait, what am I doing? Is, is this something where I can add some more nuance? Is something more detail? So those are the general process tools that I use. 
in terms of training, uh, I work very hard to uh, uh, create a balance between three things, characterization, spectacle, hmm. and uh, the direction, making sure that the narrative plot keeps moving. So uh, in each, each installment, every time somebody picks something up, they should have what Warren Ellis called a significant chunk of culture. It should be enough to say, oh, I got something out of it. This is a thing. And in that, I have to balance something amazing happening that they've either never seen before or never seen in that way. Uh, that's the spectacle. Character, so they can get to know who the people are involved in this and care about them so the things that happen in the third part, plot, actually matter. Mm. So I have a list of things that have to happen. Uh, that's true. I get through those. But on top of that list of things, then I say, all right, well, I have to say something about who these people are, how they react to that. Would they be humming a, a, you know, a Taylor Swift song at this point and thinking, oh, well, I'm going to go culturally appropriate lemonade with my new video or whatever. Um, we, <laughs> there's so much on Twitter about that this weekend. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and on top of that, I have to think, and how will I astonish them? Mm. What am I going to put in here that they have never? When I put in that jetpack scene in New Money, the, the, the artist, well, first of all, I sent it in to the editor. The editor was like, did you, is this a jetpack? And I just sent him a link that I already had ready that you can buy a jetpack for $15,000. He was like, <laughs> anybody can buy a jetpack for I'm like, anybody. He was like, why do people, you knew this. I'm like, yes, I knew it. And now lots of people can know it. So then the, I had the exact same conversation with the artist. Then I had the exact same conversation with the letter. <laughs> because if, if I can astonish the people on my team, then I'm pretty sure I can, I can get something across to the audience that they may be surprised by. And if I can balance those three things from a process standpoint, uh, uh, and from a, that's, that's part of the training that I got, then I think I'm doing okay. I also believe very heavily in, in going back through the dialogue to make sure there's something quotable. Um, you, I, there's, there's pro, I could probably say a hundred things from Star Wars that you would know off the top of your hat, what it looked like, where you were when you heard it, because those quotes stick with you. You end up incorporating them into the things you do. You've heard how many quotes I've used today. So if I can come up with a line, there's a line from my second novel, uh, Far Away, which was a science fiction prison thing, um, where this, uh, uh, this guy is in handcuffs and being interrogated and whatever, and he's kind of laughing at people. He's like, why do you think you're so funny? And he lifts up his hands and the, the shackles fall off on the floor. And everybody jumps up and points guns with him. He's like, my superiority complex isn't racial, it's personal. And like I've had so many people who read this quote that line back to me, they're like, oh, I'm running that to death. <laughs> and when I can do things like that, that's, I believe, going to make the story have greater longevity and stick with you more in the same way that I'm still saying, me thinks she does protest too much and so on and so <laughs> right. forth. That's awesome. That's a great way of thinking about it too because I actually had a screenwriting professor tell me one time, if you don't have something on every page that is you know how whatever use whatever word you want to describe it outstanding cool mm -hmm. interesting whatever if you don't have something on every single page of your screenplay that makes the reader want to read the next one mm -hmm. you're in big trouble so that's mm -hmm. excellent um okay so what part of the process do you just hate the part of the process that i hate is how long it takes ah. because um like i said i already know what the last panel of project wildfire is it's amazing. I'm, I'm like, I'm so excited about it because it does so many things that I've always wanted to do. And I'm, I'm, but I can't get there. It's literally years and years away from me uh. because I, I've got these other things to do and to make that pay off properly in the same way that on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., if you saw uh, at several seasons ago, 
Ward told uh, 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 Sky or, or Daisy or whatever her name is, he says, one day you'll understand. She's like, I'll never understand. I'll never understand. And you forgot about it. And then after she went through the Tesseract and dealt with a different version of Ward that activated, she was like, you know what? I understand. And I, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> you hit me three years later with that? Oh, my God. <laughs> So sometimes to make something pay off that way, you have to be patient. Right. Patience is hard. Yeah. Patience sucks. Oh my God, <laughs> patience sucks. Oh, I could not agree more. <laughs> so when you're working, especially in long form things, and or, or even when you're doing like a one shot, even when you're doing something, I, I wrote uh, Artifacts 35 so many more mo months before people actually saw it. So by the time they got to it, I was like, oh, that thing? Oh, I've almost even forgotten about it. Yeah, <laughs> what yeah, yeah. I know that feeling very well. In fact, we have a story that we're working on now that we were going to release this summer. And then based on some re reading I was doing and just based on my analysis of the work, I was like, ah, this could be better. So we just went right back into tackling it again. And of course, that just unravels everything. You just add time to the process. So patience is a tough one for me too, man. Yes, sir. Um, what's your favorite part of the process? My favorite part of the process is when I'm really on when I really feel like I'm, I'm really accomplishing exactly what I'm doing. It's like I'm not even doing anything at all. It's like when you plug uh, a circuit together, when you get that last piece in a circuit and it connects and all of a sudden there's a flow of stuff. Or when you're, I, I also do DJing. So when I plug in the last cable and the sound magically starts coming out and it's exactly, and people react to it. It's mm. like, it's literally like magic. It's, it's, a feeling like I'm not even working. I'm just channeling the energy of the universe somehow. Hmm, and hmm. when I'm on like that, it's it's such a high to chase. It's amazing. And and I get like I can't even watch. I, I, I'm starting to watch this show called Critical Role from Geek and Sundry. I'm on. I'm like halfway through the run. And like every time I'm watching, I'm like, oh, there's seven fantasy stories I want to be writing, but I need to do this other thing <laughs> that they're paying me for. Right. So, right. <laughs> so when I get connected, oh, it's so good. It just it's it's it, my my entire body lights up. Oh, that's cool. Okay, so I have um, just a couple more questions for you, but this is not a question I had um, that I sent to you, but it's one that I'm going to start asking creators, especially mm -hmm. people who are involved in the comic business, because I'm curious about this myself. And that mm -hmm. and that is like as you release irrational numbers and as you gain a following for that, how how what it, what does that look like for you? What do you what do you call success? Like how many books do you need to sell? What does that need to look like? What are you aiming for? What are some of your goals with that? Well, my personal goals and my realistic goals are drastically different. Hmm. Um, <laughs> my personal goal, as I always tell people, is I want to be the Black George Lucas. That I want to have a an empire spanning billions of dollars in multiple areas. My more realistic goals are I'm trying to be like John Scalzi. I'm trying to build a living and build something that's, that can live on uh, throughout my work, or maybe even Ian Banks, but hopefully not uh, passing as soon as he did. It was a real tragedy, his passing. Um, that uh, from a comic standpoint, in comics, if you, uh, if you are an independent selling 5,000 issues of something, you're kind of killing it. Right. Um, and that's... For me, based on you know the fact that I worked in newspapers where I was doing a hundred thousand copies a week, or magazines where I was doing two or three hundred thousand copies a week, that's those numbers seem ridiculous to me. But right, right. <laughs> given the production cost, the lead time, and the enormously difficult uh, mindset of penetrating a very very conservative audience, most of the people who buy comics are very very locked into this. Isn't what I was reading thirty years ago. 
So uh, even if they weren't alive in that way, <laughs> excuse me, in some cases. So if 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 I was able to consistently get to a point where I was selling between five and ten thousand uh, ten thousand copies of something, that would make me an indie superstar. And I know yeah. that. Um, I am honestly don't know what the numbers are on irrational numbers because I haven't checked. I've been too busy writing scripts. But <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm already into the scripts for the next mini after that scoundrel. So. Uh, I don't know what those numbers are. Uh, yeah. The publisher's happy, so I'm assuming they're good numbers. Um, and I know that he does, he has a very diversified income stream that he doesn't just rely, like, his books don't go through Diamond Distributors, which in comics is impossible. Nobody, mm-hmm. almost nobody does that. But he's like, Pfft. he only sells digitally. He works through uh, libraries. He has a lot of stuff happening in Europe. So his business model is very different than a traditional American uh, comics publisher. So oh, whatever he's doing, it's making money and the checks to me are clearing, so I'm not mad about it. Yeah. But <clears throat> yeah, if I was able to sell 5,000 domestic copies per issue, I would be enormously happy of anything that I was doing. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, by the way, I don't think you need to be Black George Lucas. I just think you need to be the first Hannibal Taboo and just be billions. I can see it happening, man. I, 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 I'm very ambitious and I'm very hopeful in that regard. And I just, yeah. th- that gives me something to chase. That gives me someone to, for me, I'm, I'm an enormously competitive person. So that gives me, I'm like, oh, you're in the lead? I got you. <laughs> just you <laughs> wait. Awesome. Just you wait. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I, I, I'm rooting for you. We may, we may have more worldview conversations down the line, but I love that, that, uh, that goal. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, Okay, two questions. The, this one's easy. Then I got a, one that's, a, that's maybe a little trickier, but um, how are people going to connect to you? So you, I, I'm connected to you on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, but where, where can people find you? The uh, central places where my work is proliferated are at the Operative Network site, which is a site for the creative studio I'm a member of, uh, which is operative.net. Uh, that's also OperativeNet on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I think it's Operative Network on Tumblr. I can't remember. But, okay. uh, it, you know, if you look for Operative Network and a site, it'll normally pop up. Uh, and also my own site, HannibalTaboo.com. Uh, I'm available via Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at, at HannibalTaboo, one word, no funny spellings, no umlauts or anything, uh, because I believe in brand consistency. Uh, so there's those things. And then I have every week, I'm at Comic Book Resources on Thursday by noon Pacific Standard Time or so. You'll see my column, The Buy Pile, which has been going since 2006. Uh, every week, you know, a lot of comics. And I, I do the best I can to communicate my perception of that as well as I can. Uh, lots of people think I hate everything, but I, I clearly don't. Uh, <laughs> but it, people have that perception, and I, I'm like, yeah, if that's what you need to think. Uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. those three places are the main places you can find me as well as uh, I'm not really officially on that, so I'm not going to say that one yet. Uh, okay. But yeah, those those are generally the places where I can be found. Awesome, awesome. So go out. I encourage everybody, um, head out there, uh, follow Hannibal, um, support his work. Um, the last question that I have for you, so I end every podcast when we do um, any of our deeper dives with uh, question everything and seek the truth. And this conversation that you and I are having today about where your worldview come from and what, is, what are some of your core beliefs is the exact reason why I asked this question. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is what truth, and you, again, you can redefine that because I know you talked about redefining that earlier, but mm-hmm. what truth or facts are you reflecting on recently and why? 
All right. Well, I will definitely speak to my own truths as, you know, they're the only ones I've got. Um, <clears throat> when I was in high school, there was an album that came out from George Michael in a transitional period called Listen Without Prejudice. Mm. And one of the songs on there, uh, he had a line where he said, the fallen dreams of heaven, but what the hell are you supposed to do when they come true? Mm. And I looked at that in a lot of ways. And I looked at <clears throat> right now that the life that I'm living is if teenage me could see it or young me, they'd be blown away. You know, I have this mm. amazing, super talented, gorgeous wife. I have these great kids. I have a job that doesn't really mind when I write comics a lot and <laughs> go to Comic-Con and uh, provides for my family and I'm making good money in comics and I'm telling stories that are interesting that I want to be telling. Uh, so it's in a lot of ways uh, living the dream for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people see what I'm doing and they're like, oh my God, you're doing so great. You're doing so great. But, and, and I, I appreciate that and I want to be thankful and grateful for that. But like I said, George Lucas still got several billion dollars more than I do. <laughs> several billion. You know, Jet Lucas's great grandkids are going to go to college on Star Wars money, on Jar Jar action figure money. <laughs> That's true. So I'm like, you know what? I need, I need to step the game up. I'm not, you know. Now, admittedly, you know, Spider-Man, Stan came up with Spider-Man uh, when he was 40. You know, uh, Jack Kirby was really, you know, hitting his stride when he was 44. And I respect that, and I get that. I'm 44 now, so I'm like, all right, I'm really trying to, you know, I'm trying to nail it. And they, they, of course, weren't, you know, making the big, big money at that time. They were doing okay, and I try to keep that in perspective. But yeah. I also try to think, you know, getting comfortable is the most dangerous possible thing for an artist because it's the thing that led us from Zenyatta Mondada with Sting to, you know, Ten Summoners Tales, which is, eh, it's all right. Mm. Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> hunger. For improvement, to improve my craft, to improve my situation, to improve my ability to achieve these goals can't die out. I would much rather burn out than fade away in that regard. So um, I, I contemplate the truth of that, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in heaven adjacent, heaven-ish, but <laughs> uh, I also don't want to, you know, I also don't want to get to, you know, where George is and have Jar Jar come out. You know, there's right. there's so many dangers uh, in that regard. So it's it's always being cognizant of where I am and where I'm going and what I need to be doing to fulfill what I feel is is my own my own choice of destiny. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, to I, I know you've got, I know you've already got stories that you've got to get to, so <laughs> I can't keep you for much longer. I got to let you get back to it. Um, but thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing your perspective. Thanks for going deep into those questions with me. Love to do it. The story geeks appreciate it, and we appreciate you. And actually, Hannibal is on our story geeks community page. So, like I said before, be sure to go follow him. Go check him out. And um, we'll continue to have him on to have deeper discussions with us. Thank you. Thank you, Hannibal. Happy to do it. Thank you for having me. That is it for today's podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you have an extra minute, write us a review or share this episode with one of your geek friends. All right, fellow geeks. As always, question everything in your favorite stories and always seek the truth. We'll catch you on the next podcast.